I knew our product was awesome. I knew that people who bought our product loved it. So keeping those two things in mind, I knew that my biggest challenge was to figure out how to get it into the hands of people who were going to think our product was awesome. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how a Thai police officer gave him his business idea, how to overcome potential customers that think your product is weird, and how to find a marketing agency that is aligned with your interests. Before we get into our show, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Shopify App Store. Shopify apps help you easily customize and add features to your store to make it your own. The App Store hosts over 4,000 apps built specifically for Shopify businesses. Shopify developers all over the world built these apps to help you save time and unlock a range of new features, from showing your Instagram feed on your store to offering loyalty rewards and more. Check out shopify.com slash app store for the latest Shopify apps. Today, I'm joined by Brian Davis from Teddy Stratford. Teddy Stratford created the ZipFit shirt, a patented athletic cut button down the zips and fits closer without gapping between the buttons. And was started in 2014 and based out of New York. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Felix. Uh, I have to tell you, um, over the years I've been listening to your show, your voice is very familiar to me and I've gotten lots of tips from listening. And um, so being on the show as a guest is a true milestone for me. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, awesome. I'm, I'm so glad that, that, that the, the show has helped you out and I'm, I'm glad that you're here to, uh, to, to kind of pass it on. Um, so I want to talk about the idea behind the business because it's, well, you told us a funny story, not too much detail. So I'd love to hear details about how getting pulled over by the police, uh, helped you come up with the idea behind the business. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, uh, let's see. So it, I, I was in, Thailand. I had kind of run to Thailand to get away from a hectic business situation. I had opened and closed a restaurant in Miami um, and I needed a break, but I was broke uh, after the business. And I, I ran away to Thailand where things are less expensive. And so one day I'm driving my friend's car through Bangkok and this uh, police officer steps out into the middle of the road and he motions me to the side of the road. So I pull over and as he's approaching the car, and this may sound strange, but I notice that his uniform looks really cool. And specifically, the shirt was this slim fit shirt. And uh, even though he wasn't particularly fit himself, uh, he looked really sharp. He looked really good in the shirt. And so I, I'm thinking, I, I got to have one of these shirts. And um, so... <laughs> As he uh, comes up to the window, my friend who's riding shotgun is Ty. She's got to translate the whole conversation. And she says to me, he says to take 200 baht, which is the, about seven bucks, fold it up, put it behind your license and hand him your license. And uh, so I'm, I'm thinking, hmm. I said, you know, tell him I'll give him 400 baht if he tells me where I can get one of these uniforms. And so the guy, of course, agreed to that. And uh, um, and so I folded up 400 baht, put it behind my driver's license, handed it to him. And he pulled out his uh, notepad. And instead of writing me a ticket, he wrote the address to his tailor down on the notepad. So 
it turns out that Taylor was about, uh, it was really right around the corner from where we got pulled over. So we go into the Taylor and again, there's no English spoken at the Taylor. So my friend is working as translator and, uh, the guy kind of sizes me up and realizes that I don't look Thai. So he, he thought, uh, well, this guy can't impersonate a police officer. So yeah, I'll make you a, a police uniform. And so he's going through kind of all the paces of, uh, you know, do you want cuffs on your pants? Do you want this? Do you want that? And he gets to this point where my friend can't translate. She says, he says, do you want buttons or do you want something else? And, uh, I said that, what do you mean something else? And so the guy goes into the back and he brings out two example shirts. One of them is uh, kind of a regular button down. Um, and the other one, it looks like a button down, but there's actually a zipper behind the buttons. And uh, I'd never seen this before. So it struck me as, you know, this is interesting. And I said, I'll take the, I'll take the zipper. Um, and so uh, I placed the order. And about a week later, I go in to pick up my police uniform. And I'm trying it on in the fitting room. And the, the pants fit great. Uh, but I'm really disappointed as I put the shirt on because it's so tight. It was like, uh, like a wetsuit almost that tight. And uh, I was kind of bummed out because I was looking forward to wearing my new shirt when I got back to the United States. And it was so tight that there was no way that I could uh, wear it as anything other than like a Halloween costume, which it actually is, is what I did that Halloween. <laughs> but I look at myself in the mirror after I've zipped this shirt up. And one of the things that I noticed was this thing's so tight, but there's no gaps between the button. Uh, between the buttons. And this is actually something, uh, a problem that I had had wearing slim fit shirts uh, is the gapping between the buttons, especially at the chest. And I thought, huh, that's, that's why these guys look so good in their shirts because they can wear closer fitting shirts and they don't look like they're busting out of them because of the gaps between the buttons. So that was kind of like the seed of the um, idea. And, uh, you know, I brought the shirt back to New York and I showed it to one of my best friends who worked at Bloomingdale's um, and he'd been buying men's dress shirts for years and he had never seen this before. And he liked the idea. And so I worked with uh, Bloomingdale's almost immediately to develop a shirt, a zipper shirt for their store line. Um, and, uh, and, and we released the first kind of zipper shirt. It was basically a replica of the Thai police shirt, but less fitted. Um, and we released this shirt, uh, to, uh, in, in, I think seven different Bloomingdale stores, we made about a thousand of them. And, um, it was very poor selling, uh, project like that. I guess apparently they had to send, sell, sell about, uh, 50% of them on deep discount. And it was such a bad selling item that they uh, did not reorder. Um, so the, the, the good things, the kind of the thing that came from that failure was I got to see why it was that the shirt didn't sell. And there were lots of different reasons. One of the things was that, that, that the manufacturer had used kind of a, a cheap zipper. And so this is the, kind of like the way that you close the, the shirt, you can't, uh, you can't skimp on the zipper. You have to have a good zipper. And then the other thing was that there was something wrong with the center placket that didn't keep it covering the zipper. And so when you zipped it up, uh, if you're wearing the shirt, you could see the zipper. 
And then the other thing, this is the most important thing, was that the item got lost in the entire collection of, of men's stuff among their cashmere sweaters and their pants and this and that. And nobody was there to tell the story or put the shirt into context. Um, and, uh, and so it's kind of like, it was just a thing and, um, and it disappeared. So, um, I, I kind of, now it has to be said that this was really kind of a side project for me. So, you know, um, at the time I was, I had, I had moved back to New York from Miami after I closed the restaurant, um, and was working on this tech product, um, and pushing that forward. But in the meantime, like that wasn't making any money. So I was also working as a bartender and a DJ. Um, so I had a lot of, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to work on it, but I just kind of kept pushing it forward. And one day I, uh, discovered this custom shirt maker, uh, called Seago custom shirts. They were across the, the, the hallway in a building in New York from where I was getting my skates sharpened. I'm a, I'm a hockey player. And I walk in and I met the owner. His name's Carl Goldberg. And I told him about the shirt and he thought it was interesting. And then I brought him uh, a sample of the shirt and he agreed to make me a prototype uh, because what I wanted to do is I wanted to make a regular looking button down or button up shirt with the zipper and see whether or not that worked. Because previously all we had done is made, uh, I had had a police shirt and then I had the Bloomingdale shirt was kind of a police shirt looking thing. And it, it, I think it's a, a good idea to pause here and just say, in addition to uh, Carl, who had been in the shirt business for 30 some odd years and my friend at Bloomingdale's who had also been in the shirt business for uh, over a decade, neither of them had ever seen this before and it struck them as a good idea. But in fact, for years, for decades, actually, police uniforms and security shirts, even in the United States, had been uh, made as uh, with a zipper shirt option. So this zipper was not something exclusive to the Thai police department, nor to the tailor who I had met, but it was being sold by uniform shirts all over the United States. And I would assume uh, different countries around the world. So it was not an idea that was actually owned by anyone. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, we, Carl and I made the first uh, prototype and it worked. It was great. It looked, it looked like a regular button down shirt. Um, and, uh, and then that was kind of the beginning of um, Teddy Stratford. Um, I had a roommate at the time who also really liked the idea. And he and I, I had come up with the uh, name for the brand. And then he and I worked on the logo and we kind of pushed things forward. He put some money in, I put some money in. And um, over, I guess it took us, it took us a couple of years at least from the time that we had the first prototype made to the time that we launched our Kickstarter campaign. So when I, when I say that we launched in, in 2014, that was actually when we launched our Kickstarter campaign, but I had been working on it uh, and pushing it forward just a little by little uh, for a, a few years before that. Wow. So first of all, thank you for walking us through that. That's an amazing story. It started off with bribery into potential police impersonation, 
all the way to the failures of Bloomingdale's and the, the learnings from there. So I want to unpack this a bit. So I think, you know, the, the first thing that I want to talk about is that it's kind of, you, you hinted at this, which is that it's really exciting to me that there are just so many opportunities to take ideas or products that are just everywhere that just haven't been applied to other use cases, right? From uniforms to, to again, you mentioned that these, you, you spoke to people that have been in the industry for a long time, you know, decades of, of time, and they had never seen this, even though it's, it's not the same industry, it's not menswear or fashion, but it's right next door to it. They're making clothing, and and it's just that they're just use cases that have not been taken ideas that, that cannot be applied. Um, so I think that the first thing I want to ask you is that how did you recognize that this was in a business opportunity? That okay, that you liked it, and what made you say, you know what, maybe other people like it? You know, probably leading into Blooming Does, even though that wasn't a you know quote unquote success by you know typical metrics, uh, you still knew that there was a chance here. To to, to make this thing bigger than just, you know, a, a tailored share for yourself? Yeah. Okay. So that is a, a good question. And, um, what, you know, I think what the, the, the answer is you have to look at what, uh, problem does the, the, the product solve. And for me, I, I had already started wearing slim fit shirts. Um, and I'm in relatively good shape. I'm not semi athletic. I'm not a great athlete, but I'm athletic. And so, uh, I have a, a bit of a broader chest and a slimmer waist because I stay in shape and, and there are a lot of people like me. And the, the problem with regular slim fit shirts and, and with, you know, actually have the way that uh, almost every brand is made is that they want their product to fit as many people as possible. And so what they do is they get a fit model who's a, a person of average proportions and then they build their shirt around this average proportioned person. Um, and in doing that, they're, they're able to fit as many people as possible. So you've got an athletic framed person fits inside of the shirt. Someone who loses a few pounds also fits inside of that shirt. But what happens when an athletic guy puts on a, a shirt like this is if it fits him in the chest, it's generally too baggy around the waist and you get that extra kind of billowing uh, waist situation. Um, and then if it fits him in the waist, it's usually too tight to the chest and you get what we refer to as pec gap, which is the gap that opens between your buttons um, right at the chest. And, and so the, 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 the athletic guy not being able to find a shirt that fits him um, because of that, we call that the athlete's dilemma. And so this on the surface, the, the zipper itself solves this problem. So you can wear a closer fitting shirt, even if it's not tight. When you move in a shirt without a zipper, if it's fitting close, there, there's always a gap that opens at the chest. Uh, the, the zipper solves that problem. Um, but in addition to that, we decided to approach the fit, which is kind of our, our secret sauce. So you, you come for the zipper and then you stay for the fit. Um, we decided to approach the fit in a different way from the way that really any brand, as far as I know, uh, has approached the fit. And we started with the philosophy that the shirt is a frame around your torso. And so remember, I talked about the, the building it around average proportion. So when you put an average proportion frame around someone's torso, it makes them look average. So we thought, what happens if you take 
a quote unquote ideal proportioned frame and put that around someone's uh, torso. And so what we did was we looked at, um, you know, I started doing some research on uh, the, on, on men's bodies and the way they have been de- depicted by artists over the centuries. And I came across this, uh, the, this concept called the golden ratio and all of these artists were building their statues and doing their paintings and so on and so forth, according to the golden ratio, which was kind of like a shoulders, chest to waist to arms ratio. Um, and, you know, Apparently, with this golden ratio, it, that ratio is pleasing to the eye. And so they kind of built their statues and their art around it. And then I started looking at modern day uh, men who uh, are considered to, to have good bodies. And these guys, when you looked at the ratio uh, of their upper bodies, it's very similar to the way that artists were depicting like a hero's body back in the Renaissance. And so we came up with a ratio and built our shirt around that ratio. And then we kind of took that shirt and started trying it on different, mostly athletic guys. So I play hockey. I tried it on my teammates. I also was doing CrossFit at the time and I would try it on guys at the gym and I would take notes about like what doesn't fit, what, what does fit, what works, what doesn't work. And we would change the shirt according to these notes and then bring out the next version and try it on guys and stuff like that. So we kind of ended up at this final ratio that every one of our shirts, we call it our golden ratio. Every one of our shirts is built around this golden ratio, regardless of if it's an extra small up to the double XL, it all has this same ratio. Um, And the result of this is that it fits athletic guys almost like it's custom made. We have people who leave reviews on our site that say, I've never been able to find a shirt that fits like this. Um, Even custom shirts don't fit like this and so on and so forth. But what it also does is it takes a guy who's not in incredible shape. And because of the shape of the shirt, it makes him look more athletic. And uh, so we also get reviews that say like, I look like I'm in great shape and uh, I'm not. So, this was, uh, this is kind of what, where we've, we started and, and what we've grown on. What are the zipper and the fit? Yeah. So, so I want to talk about the, that experience uh, at Bloomingdale's and that, that, that was kind of a stepping stone before you guys at the point where you understood how to perfect this product more. Now you had mentioned that you had a friend that worked there and then all of a sudden you had a thousand of your shirts in their stores, which is a big accomplishment in itself. And which is again, also it's kind of a big, big leap. Like what happened along the way? How was that? How were you able to arrange that? So you know, he recognized it as an interesting idea. He liked the way that the shirt uh, functioned, the one that I had functioned. And he just said, hey, you know, I I just want to test it out and see if it works. Um, and would you consult with our, so they have a, they have a factory um, that makes their dress shirts. Would you consult with our factory and, uh, and, and they'll make a zipper shirt and we'll release it. And, you know, basically, uh, you know, I got paid a very small <laughs> uh, commission off of uh, what was made. Um, and he said, you know, it'll be a good way to test out this concept and see if it works. And and uh, so, I, you know, the, the only answer I could come up with was yes. 
Yeah, I think I think just having a a interesting problem that solves a, a real problem, I think, uh, can get you very far in opening doors. Is, is kind of what I what I'm hearing from this. So, you know, what's interesting is that one of the reasons why I think it failed is that they didn't. The people who were selling the product on the floor didn't understand that it actually solved solved the problem. So there was a a disconnect there and and a lack of context. Yeah, I was going to get into that next. I think um, you had mentioned that uh, that you, once you once you looked at it closer, though, there were, were also improvements that you wanted to make on the product after it, it you know it, it didn't sell well. How did you discover these things where you wanted to make these? So it sounds like two problems. Right? The, the the product could be better, but then also the the way it can be sold, the context, the 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 explanation of why this is solving a problem. That's like a kind of marketing problem that you also had to solve. But when it came to the product first, how did you discover that, okay, the, the zipper wasn't high quality, the, it wasn't covering the, the zipper well? Like how did you discover these things that you wanted to improve on the product in the next kind of iteration? Uh, I, they, they gave me a few samples from their production run and I was wearing them myself and I was, you know, washing them. And then I, I realized that this, the zipper was sticky. And then also uh, that that front placket thing that I was talking about, there was no there was a, a very soft inner lining, which was allowing the placket to pull back and expose the zipper while you were wearing it. So those were two things that I identified right away. Th- those were the two main fixes that came from the Bloomingdale's thing. And were you confident that that these were fixes that other people cared about, or did you have to kind of ask customers what's what you what they didn't like about the, the product? How did you did you go off of your own kind of instinct about hey this can be improved in a certain way, or were there kind of steps to figuring out how to make this product better? Yeah, so it was really kind of instinctual, or it was kind of like what I noticed when I had the product. So I wasn't able to talk to any of their customers. Um, because they were Bloomingdale's customers and they didn't, you know, I, I didn't even think to ask them to put me in touch with someone who mm. had purchased the shirt. Yeah. So now the, the, the shirt is obviously a, a novel concept for, for again, menswear fashion, people that are wearing these kind of you know, shirts for, for fashion as a uniform. Did people think it was weird? Did they think like, this is a weird thing, like this is new, which makes them think maybe this is weird and that you have to overcome that at all? Yeah, actually, you know, that is probably the biggest stumbling block that we hit. So for me, you know, I was just excited that I discovered something new. I thought it was cool and so on and so forth. It was difficult at first for me to understand how someone not myself would, would see it at first. And so, yeah, it, and it's strange because our shirt, when you look at it, being worn properly. It, it looks just like a regular shirt, although I, I would argue that it fits a lot better. Um, but it's totally different because it has a zipper. And so there's a perception when it's taken out of context that this is like a clip on tie, like it's a like it's a shortcut or a cheat. Some people see it and they say, what what are people so lazy that they can't button up their shirts nowadays? And so it is a challenge at first. Another thing that people say is like, oh, this is a great shirt for a stripper, which is, I mean, probably true, but, uh, the, but, but bringing it into context, okay, yes, the shirt has a zipper, but it's not because, uh, it's a cheat, like a clip on tie or Velcro shoes. It's not because people are too lazy to button up their shirts. 
it's because it actually solves a problem. And so uh, if we, if our messaging talks about that problem, shows the problem and shows the solution, you know, it, it, the perception of it is, is a little bit different. Yeah. Now, so, so talk to us about how you, you kind of bridge that gap once you, you know, you go to Kickstarter and you go direct to consumer where you can't control the, the context, the messaging, making sure they understand the differentiator. What are some things that you do tactically to make sure that you get the point across that this is not just a regular shirt, but solves a very specific problem? Well, one of the things that we knew that we needed to do from the get-go was get past the perception that it was a gimmick. And I had shown it to someone who was in fashion at first and um, his immediate uh, feedback was like, Oh, it's like a clip on tie. And that was the first time I had heard that. And I thought, Oh my God, I have to figure out how to uh, get around that objection. And then I gave him a shirt and he wore it for a little while. And he came back to me and said, this is, this shirt is incredible. And, uh, and so I thought, okay, so this guy's first impression was that it's a clip on tie. And then after he had it, he thought it was incredible. So, um, you know, we created very early on, um, a, a, a North star for our brand, which has actually become our slogan, which is the best fitted shirt on the planet. And so we didn't want, we didn't set out to just make a shirt that had a zipper or a shirt that we also have a patented collar on our shirt, uh, a shirt that has a, a patented collar that doesn't fall down. We should, we set out to create the best fitted shirt on the planet. And so if you want to create the best shirt, you have to start with quality. And so we really kind of lean into quality. We use premium fabrics and materials. We have a custom designed zipper that we teamed up with YKK to, uh, to produce for our shirt. Um, and all of our stuff is handmade. And so we used single needle tailoring. So Carl, uh, my partner has a background in custom shirting. So we kind of brought a lot of custom shirting, um, manufacturing, uh, elements to the shirt. So we use single needle tailoring, uh, and flat felled seams, which keeps the shirt super strong at the seams. And so when people get the shirt that if they know what they're looking at, they can feel the fabric and then when they put it on, they can feel that it's quality. Um, and that's the most important thing for us because this is what gets people, this and the fit is what gets people to reorder. And um, I think, you know, so, so we kind of lean on that, that story, the fit and the quality story. So, you know, we say, and, and also the, uh, the uh, novelty uh, part of it. So if the shirt is patented, we have a design patent on the shirt and the collar is, we have a utility patent on the collar. So it's a, we say it's a, it's a patented handmade premium quality athletic cut, so on and so forth. But we lead with those other things before we get to the zipper. Yeah. So, so I think uh, the, getting people to reorder uh, the product has to be, uh, has to be, you know, superb where people want to, to buy. So the fit and quality makes sense once they get it for the first time and realize, wow, let me buy more of these shirts. How, well, what about the, that first time? Like, what do you find that you mentioned leaning on the fit and quality and the story and the novelty and the patented, um, the technology that's involved is all, uh, helpful. Is that like, just like you writing the text? Is it reviews? Or what is it exactly that you find helpful for people to try for the first time? Yeah, that's, that's a great, so normally unless, unless it's word of mouth, the way that people and or, or Kickstarter, the way that people encounter us for the first time is through digital ads. And we do 
almost all of our customer acquisition is done on Facebook and Instagram. And so um, the nice thing about our product is it is demonstrable and it works very well in videos. Um, and so in those videos, we try to touch on and show, we, we say, and we show and tell, um, you know, how the shirt is different. First of all, that the shirt looks normal. That's another part of it. That's very important because men especially are not willing to try something new if they're going to look weird in it. Uh, and then, um, what problems it solves and the benefits of wearing the shirt. Hey, Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. Makes sense. Now, I want to talk about something you mentioned um, a little bit a while ago around all the different things you're doing, right? You mentioned you at a restaurant, you end up closing down, you launched a, you work in a tech product, this clo- the clothing brand that was getting off the ground, you were a bartender and DJ, so many different things going on. I think I think it's a it's a it's a uh, situation that a lot of entrepreneurs uh, are in where they're just trying to kind of balance everything and try dip their toe in a bunch of different things to see what what kind of sticks. So, what, what's your method for determining um, you know what you should kind of close down versus what you think is worth kind of investing more of your focus and your time into? So, the bartending and DJing thing truly was just to pay the bills. Um, it was something that I knew how to do having been in the, I, I used to, uh, be a bar and nightclub owner in, in New York before the restaurant in Miami. And I learned how to bartend there. And I learned how to DJ by kind of coaching my DJs in the places. And, and I needed to have some money coming in so I could pay the bills so that I could push my projects forward. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, the, so this, this was another job that I had was, um, I lived in a three bedroom apartment in New York. And once my roommates moved out, I started renting the spare bedrooms on Airbnb and Airbnb. I found out uh, in the next, you know, uh, years or so is kind of like the quote unquote, dirty little secret behind the startup world or, or was in New York at the time, because every single person who I was in the startup community with was renting at least one of their bedrooms on Airbnb. And so that was covering my rent. Uh, if I was lucky, I was making money on top of that. And, uh, and then I started managing other people's spare bedrooms on Airbnb as well, turned it into a little business. And I had someone working with me uh, doing that. So that became almost automated. So now I had a, a semi-automated income coming in from these Airbnb things. And then I was able to stop bartending and only DJ. And then eventually, uh, I was able to stop DJing altogether once the shirt company started making enough money to, to pay my bills as well. Um, so, you know, I think that you, you have to have like that, that main thing that you're making money off of. For me, it was bartending, DJing, and then eventually it was uh, some Airbnb stuff. And then you're pushing your dream forward with the money that you're getting from the things that you're uh, using to make Money and, and to be honest with you, it's 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 a juggle, uh, it's a grind, and that's you know I, I think most entrepreneurs like we didn't go out and raise money, perhaps we could have, but I didn't want to give up uh, equity in the company until it was doing a significant amount of business because I thought I'd be giving it away for less than it was worth, and so you know anytime I meet a fellow entrepreneur who's done it, like we all kind of like 
we know like, yeah, you paid your dues. So it sounds like you kind of just like smell where these opportunities are, money-making opportunities and kind of just uh, try them out. Do you ever say no and let me focus on other stuff or I can't, I can't divert my focus too much or back in those early days, if there's an opportunity, you were on it. No, a hundred percent. I mean, I think it's really important. I think the, uh, that actually the, the things that you decide not to do are sometimes as important, if not more important than the things you decide to do. Uh, so that restaurant that I opened in Miami, that was a very bad decision. I should have decided in hindsight not to do it. It was underfunded. Um, there were lots of different reasons, um, why I shouldn't have done it. And, um, and so, yes, I, I do say no to things and I, and, and frankly, my bandwidth, uh, is not very big. So if I'm taking up something with uh, something that's not useful, um, it prevents me from moving mm -hmm. the, the better things forward. So, yeah. So. Was this something you had to, had to learn, like a muscle you had to learn or, or to work rather to develop or, because I think, I think this is like the challenge, right? Entrepreneurs are typically ambitious and have big goals, big dreams, and they're going out to tackle them. But it's also this kind of mode of thinking that kind of makes you want to take on anything and everything as much as possible. And over time, there's this just need to to focus more. Otherwise, you're going to be spread too thin, like the bandwidth issues that you're talking about. Did you have to develop this or did you just, how did you get better at saying no to stuff? So, you know, it, it's funny. I, I don't know if you're familiar, you probably are, are with the uh, concept of feature creep, which is mm -hmm. uh, when you're designing a product and you and you keep adding new things to it. So like with the shirt, like, oh, well, now what if we put a pocket over here or we put a something over here and we put a place for you to keep your, uh, you know, uh, iPhone or whatever. And all of a sudden, like you have this thing that you keep adding things onto and then it becomes something different from what it originally was supposed to be. And it, it's confusing. And so that's, I, I, I had been through a number of, uh, projects where we let feature creep kind of take over our project. And then we had to kind of dial it back. And so I, I learned, I guess, to only take things that were going to make the most impact and put them into your life and also into your product or your business. And so um, it was, uh, now that you uh, ask, it, it was definitely a, a, something that took time to develop because yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I kind of have ADD and I, and shiny objects distract, distract me. And, um, especially if they have money attached to them, um, it, it's definitely something, uh, that I honed over the years. Yeah. Now I want to talk about the, the, so once you launched the Kickstarter, you, uh, raised, I think $95,000, uh, on, on that campaign. Did things just start coming together at that point? Like talk to us more about when you start feeling, okay, this is, this iteration of the product makes sense. Now uh, we have a way to, to get it to, to the customers and explain the story in a way that, that helps them get it. When did you start feeling, okay, this is now on, on a much better track? You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's a great question because no, the Kickstarter, it's funny. We sold almost a hundred thousand dollars worth of shirts. And I think we had like 800 or so, um, customers at the end of the Kickstarter. And for sure that over the next few years, we kind of leaned on those customers, uh, for revenue. Um, but it didn't take off right away. Um, partially because I was, I had other things going on. Um, and it was still, even after the Kickstarter, a bit of a side project. Um, but 
mainly because we couldn't crack the marketing. And so, you know, Kickstarter is this incredible platform where there's this massive audience of people. And if you launch a product and it gains some, uh, a little bit of traction or whatever, like you get a lot of eyes on it. Um, and, but we couldn't figure out how to do that uh, outside of Kickstarter. And uh, again, because I was doing other things, I needed to have an agency help me with it because I couldn't do it myself. And it, it is really, and this is one of the things um, that I think could help new uh, people in this field is in this emerging field of digital advertising, there are so many people who talk a good game. And, you know, what happens is uh, you start to realize they're very good at marketing their services, but not your product. And so we went through a bunch of misses with different agencies um, who just couldn't figure out how to market the product. Um, And the problem was that, you know, they would get a bunch of money up front and then they'd have a monthly retainer. And then the first month didn't, didn't get any traction, but they'd ask you for another month and you continued to pay. And then you were also paying uh, for ads and the, the amount of money that you were sinking into working with this agency was piling up. And then I would just get to a point where like I was running out of money and I had to stop. And then I'd have to earn money, fill the coffers again and push that boulder back up the hill and then look for another agency. And so what I realized was I needed to find an agency whose interests were aligned with my own, which was basically my only interests were like selling uh, my shirts, finding customers for my shirts at a price or cost that made sense. And so I finally found an agency and actually there are quite a few of them out there now that work on this model, but back then you couldn't find it. An agency that was willing to work for a commission of all the sales that they, uh, you know, that their ads had, uh, had gotten us. And, um, and so now with my agency, I actually work with two marketing agencies and these guys get paid on a sliding scale, uh, according to what the ROAS is. So the return on ad spend, when the return on ad spend is high, they get a higher percentage of our sales. When it's lower, they get a lower percentage of our sales. And, um, and once I found this agency to, to, to work on that contingency, um, that combined with the proper content uh, allowed us to really take off. And, um, but it took about three years to, to crack that nut. Wow. So you still kind of believed in the mission this entire time, even though it was a big struggle uh, for yourself financially, then also um, just that you couldn't get it to, to work for the, 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 the company itself. What, what kept you going? Like what made, I mean, three years is a long time and a lot of people will start a business and, and it doesn't seem to be getting, regardless, maybe it's not successful within a year, but just doesn't feel like it's getting traction within a year. And there, you know, let me try to, let me go on to the next thing. And given your track record of kind of trying to, to try a bunch of different things out and the shiny object syndrome, what made you say, what made you stick this out for, for, for three years? One thing was I knew our product was awesome. Um, I knew that people who bought our product loved it. And so keeping those two things in mind, I knew that my biggest challenge 
was to figure out how to get it into the hands of people who were going to think our product was awesome. And, and really that was the main thing. So I was, you know, and again, I was one of the reasons why it took so long is because I was, I was DJing, bartending, uh, running my Airbnb business and, you know, making enough money to do the next marketing push. And in addition to that, I was traveling. I love to travel and I was living my life as well. And I was not desperate financially. Uh, if I had been a little bit more desperate, maybe it would have happened quicker, but I just knew I had something and, uh, and I just needed to figure out how to get it into people's hands that were going to agree with me. Mm. And this is where the, the, the marketing agency came in. The first one you had mentioned, which, uh, I think you mentioned to us that you almost went broke by working with this initial marketing agency. And I think you talked about how back then it, there wasn't this, uh, uh, model commission-based model. It, it, do you find that that's, I guess it, nowadays when other entrepreneurs are looking for help with their marketing, what are some of the either green or red flags they should pay attention to, to make sure that it is going to be aligned with their interests and, and a good fit? What, what I would recommend, and it's hard, uh, at the beginning of launching a product because you, you know, you, you don't have a track record you can point to with the marketing agency. But I think that if a marketing agency or even uh, other vendors, so we work, work with our content uh, creators as well. So the people who make our videos, they get paid on a commission basis too. So if they create an ad that uh, ends up getting us a lot of sales, they get paid more for that ad. And if the ad is a dud, then they get paid less for it. Um, but if you are looking for a marketing agency and the marketing agency is not willing to work on this commission type basis, it tells you, uh, something either a about their confidence in being able to sell your product. I mean, I think that it definitely tells you that, or B it tells you something about possibly about your product. Um, and so, you know, anytime you give a, a company or a vendor an opportunity to make money. If they see the opportunity, they're going to take it. So if they're not taking it, they're either um, just interested in kind of taking your money, jumping through a few hoops and then saying uh, it didn't work or they don't believe in your product. And that doesn't mean your product isn't going to work or that your brand isn't good. It just means that you have to figure out how to communicate why it is going to work or why it is good to, uh, the next marketing agency, because eventually you're going to have to communicate that to the world anyway. So you, your first job is selling a marketing agency on taking it on a commission basis. Yeah. And I was going to say that. So not only are, is your agency working on this model, but then also uh, a lot of the kind of contractors you've hired or that you work with also are working on this model. Is it a hard thing to convince people that, that there's like a sure, Hey, paycheck, every single pay, every single paycheck is the same versus now there is a potential where you might make nothing or make way more than your paycheck. Is it a hard thing to, to, to get others on board with? Yes, it, it is, uh, especially if we're talking about at the beginning. So one of the reasons why the first uh, marketing agency that agreed to work this way agreed to do it is because I could point to the Kickstarter campaign and say, hey, look, you know, $95,000 in sales, you know, if you communicate the message uh, well and have and target it well, that you're going to get some sales. So they, they looked at that and they said, yeah, you're right. 
So, you know, I think that at the outset, it's very difficult to, to do if you don't have something that you can point to. I, I always, almost always, I, I, when I talk to people who are starting businesses, online businesses with a product, I always recommend that they do some sort of Kickstarter because, you know, if you can't get people who you don't know to buy your product, you don't have a business. And Kickstarter is the easiest kind of lowest friction way to put your product out to the world without, you know, sinking a ton of money into it. So it's a good way to test things out. Even still, even, even seven years later, Kickstarter is, is good for that. Yeah. And, and was the messaging different between the, the Kickstarter that you had put together and the agency that you ended up working with that had a lot of interest? Like, did they reveal, did they discover new ways to kind of talk about and sell the product? You know, actually that's, that it's funny that you should say that because what, what I discovered after going through, I think we had went through, worked with three separate agencies um, before we found this other one. What I realized is these guys, the, the first agencies were showing still photos of the product. They were doing all this different stuff. And I thought, hey, wait a second. We have this Kickstarter video that was compelling enough to get people to buy $95,000 worth of shirts. Why don't we run this video? Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we kind of retrofit it. So it wasn't a Kickstarter video where at the end I say, will you support our campaign? Uh, we retrofit it and turned it into uh, an ad. And so basically our first customers, our first like significant customers that came from online advertising, were seeing the same pitch as our Kickstarter customers. Mm, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. That, now what, what went into that, that video? Do you remember what about the video just worked well to sell, sell the shirts? Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm a big believer in uh, storytelling whenever you can. And I knew that the origin story of the brand happens to be kind of interesting. It's, it's unexpected. It, it's, um, you know, it takes people to a foreign land and it, there's police involved, like you said. And, and so what I basically made a, a video that's, that told that story and then uh, talked about the product and stuff. And I, and what I, when I created that video, I, I kind of thought about it as if though, I, as if I were uh, creating a YouTube video where people can just press skip ad after five seconds. So you want to capture their attention right away. And that's, you know, that's what I did when the first five seconds, I, I set it up so that it was like, okay, Hey, I'm going to tell you this story. And then maybe you get people to watch the next five seconds. And if you're interesting enough, then they they'll watch the next five mm -hmm. seconds. Um, and so I think if you can tell a story, an interesting story, then that's what you should do. Mm, makes sense. Now I want to talk about the 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 times. Uh, fast forward a bit to now launching new products. So you're not just launching a product products and just um, you know huge batches and leave them kind of hanging on your site for forever. Talk to us about your your releasing a strategy for for new product for new uh, new shirts. Yeah, that's that's a, a good question. So. We do have uh, what I would call an evergreen collection. So, we, you know, in the background of our uh, brand is running these shirts that you'll always be able to get. So if you like our white Oxford, you're always going to be able to get our white Oxford. Everybody's going to need light blue shirts, black shirts, so on and so forth. But we 
test new products by, and we're lucky to work at the factory we work with, by the way, they're, they're in Istanbul and it took a little while to find them as well, but they are really incredible. They, um, they are not just making our shirts, but they're helping me find new materials, identify color trends and so on and so forth. Um, and they're very smart, uh, fashion wise as well. Um, and, they are willing to do small batches. Actually, every every one of our shirts, even the evergreen ones, are made in small batches. So we almost never make more than, say, one to 200 shirts at a time. But they can do batches as small as, say, 25 shirts. So if we want to try this new plaid out or if we want to try out a Western shirt or, a, you know, a short sleeve, whatever it is that we want to give it a shot, we can do small batches. Um, and what's really cool about the small batches is that it gives our existing customers uh, something to be excited about or look forward to, a reason to open our emails. Um, and then it allows us to see, like, how quickly did this thing sell? What's the feedback from the people who bought it? And we might run another small batch on the same shirt if it was moderately successful the first time around. And if it's a runaway success, then we may end up adding it into the evergreen collection. And so, yeah, the small batch program allows us to test new things, but it also allows us to get our customers excited about something that's limited edition and new. Um, and it just, it, it works. Yeah. And what's the process for, for launching these kind of small like, test batches? Do you, do you just promote it on your email list? Like what's the way to, to get out to your, your, uh, your potential customers as soon as possible? Yeah, it's, it's all, so our customer acquisition comes through the uh, Facebook and Instagram marketing, and we're going to start doing some YouTube stuff uh, soon, but all of our other sales, when we launch new things and so on and so forth, this is all through email. So, uh, you know, over the years, we've amassed a pretty big list of customers and people who've just signed up to be on the email list. And of course we segment those lists into VIPs. Those are people who've purchased many times, regular customers, people who haven't bought yet and stuff. And yes, that's how we roll it out. We roll out the small batches um, through email and we have a pretty good open rate. Yeah. And is it, does this get expensive? Because like, I'm assuming these smaller batches, anything smaller in manufacturing is going to cost more for per unit. Is there is that something that you just accept in as, as a way to test things out or are there ways around it to make sure that it's still economical? No, no. It's So first of all, it's, it's hard to find uh, factories that will do stuff like that for you. And so again, we are lucky to be working with the factory we're working with, but it is more expensive. So they charge more to manufacture it. And it also when you buy fabric at a lower quantity, it costs more per meter. Um, and so they are more expensive, but we kind of bake it into the system. Um, it brings the average price of our shirt up or cost of our shirt up. Um, but we roll with the small batch shirts. They're slightly more expensive than the stuff that's normally in stock. So we, we, we pass part of that expense on to the consumer and because they're exclusive and they're small batch, people don't seem to mind paying a little bit more for it. Makes sense. Now I'll talk a little about the website. You had mentioned the email was a big thing that you were using. Are there any specific apps that you use for email or just in general, any apps that you rely on to, to run the business? Yeah. So we, we use our email uh, app is Clavio. And uh, we had someone um, go in and, and program flows for us. So you have the card abandonment, the welcome to the site thing and so on and so forth that kind of go out automatically. Um, and then every time we have a new release, that's actually something 
that generally either I or uh, Rachel, who's a um, consultant who works for us, uh, actually, it's, it's just kind of uh, roll this back. I'm the only full-time employee, if you could even consider me a, an employee at the company. And so um, everything that we do is outsourced. And that's and, and our outsourcers are really our team and we know them very well. Uh, so even Rachel, who's like my right hand uh, person, knows the brand and the company better than anyone besides myself. She's actually has her own digital consulting agency and she works part time for us. And then, you know, our customer service people and, uh, of course, the factory and our digital agencies. And we work with a uh a uh, conversion rate optimization firm as well. Everything's outsourced, but we have close relationships with everybody. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, Clavio is great. Um, the, the basics are Clavio. We use Return Magic, which is uh, which is awesome, and also Shopify acquired Return Magic. And we we are actually using Shopify fulfillment networks. So. All of our stuff is fulfilled by Shopify. We got accepted into the beta program. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's great because like Shopify and our fulfillment center, everybody's interests are aligned because it's owned by Shopify. And then uh, Return Magic makes it easy because it it, uh, it uh, hooks up to Shopify fulfill, fulfillment network really well. The, the apps that we use also, um, one of them is called inventory planner. And this one, uh, is really good because we, you know, part of the thing about online business and especially when you don't have a ton of money to throw at inventory is, uh, you find yourself like running out of things and you have to make it and you, and it's hard to forecast it because if one of your ads is working really well, you might deplete a certain product quicker than you thought you were going to and so on and so forth. And so the owner of our fact of the factory that we work with is also a systems guy. And he has taken this app inventory planner and kind of done some programming around it that essentially every month creates an automated order for everything that we need to re replenish. So I, I can't say enough about inventory planner if you learn how to run it. And then the other one that we use is called Judge Me. And we, it, Judge Me is a reviews uh, app. And we had previously been working with another company that was great, but they had all these features on it um, that we weren't using. And as a result, they were super expensive. We were spending like, uh, you know, 13 or 14 grand a year on this, working with this other app. And then we found Judge Me, which was actually recommended by our uh, developer. Um, and it's like, I mean, night and day, it's basically free and it does just as much stuff as the other app did, which again, probably doesn't do, do just as much stuff, but we weren't using those kind of ancillary things. So I would recommend judge me, uh, wholeheartedly for reviews. Can you tell us more about what is conversion rate optimization and how you've used it to grow the business? So the single biggest change that we made this year was that we rethemed our website. Um, that's the, the biggest change that we made to the site. But the thing that we did that made the biggest impact on revenue was we started working with this CRO company called Mobile First. And CRO stands for Conversion Rate Optimization. Um, 
And Mobile First is a good name because about 80% of our customers are uh, visiting and buying on mobile phones. So what the uh, CRO company does is they come in and they look at the website and they identify different changes that can be made that might have an impact on uh, revenue. And some of the changes are really small, but what they do is they, they, they A-B test the change. And if it's statistically significant, um, we make the change to the website. And so obviously the goal is to increase conversions um, and then also increase average order value. And so, for example, you know, a couple of the uh, things that they did was on the homepage, they put uh, images of the products uh, right below the hero uh, image. We had previously had a bunch of value props right below the hero image. Um, and that turned out to be uh, sign significantly better than how we had it. So we made that change. And then we, we did have run in a year about 19 tests and about 11 of them came back as statistically significantly better. And we made those changes. And with these little incremental changes, when we first started working with them, our conversion rate was around 2%, which is not horrible, but it's also not great. And now today, uh, for the year, we're up to 3.15%. And for the last two months, it's 3.45%. So it's made a huge impact. Our average order value uh, has gone up by about 20% as well. So it, when I do the math of the impact of working with this company, um, for us, at least where we are, uh, it resulted in about $600,000 in sales. Um, so this was absolutely huge. And I had really been skeptical about working with a company like this um, before. But I can tell you, uh, at least with this company, because they, they do know what they're doing, it really does make a huge impact. Awesome. So teddystratford.com is the website where all of this is going on. And I leave you this last question. What do you think is going to be your top focus over the next year? So in 2022, we have a bunch of different things happening. Uh, one of them is we're launching our women's line. So uh, women actually have a much bigger kind of more quote unquote painful problem with the gapping between the buttons. You can uh, see their, their bra and it a lot of people, a lot of women don't wear button down shirts just because of this. So we're going to be launching the women's line uh, early 2022. And then we also have taken our fit ratio for men and applied it to t-shirts. Um, and we're going to be launching our t-shirts as well. Yeah. You know, because of the improvement in the way that our inventory is being managed, uh, I think we'll be able to scale um, a lot this year. I I'm hoping to grow one to 200%. Amazing. So thank you so much, Brian, for coming on and sharing all of your experience and advice. Yeah. Thank you, Felix. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.